Let us pray. Father, we thank You for sending Your Son, for revealing Him to the nations. We thank You for the star that guided the Magi from the east to visit Him. We thank You for His baptism in the River Jordan when You made Him our priestly representative and declared Your love for Him. We thank You for His first sign, turning water into wine at the, at the wedding in Cana. Father, all these events show us who Your Son is. They are the epiphany, the manifestation, the revealing of Your Son's identity. They show us He came to be the Savior, not just of Israel, but of the world. He came to bring in the new age, to receive the gifts and worship of the nations, and to be the bridegroom of the church, His bride. Father, we thank You for these things. We thank You for Christ Jesus. Father, bless us today in Your Son. Show us the brightness and brilliance of His glory. And may His light more and more shine through us so that we may carry forward Your mission in the world. Father, to You and to Your Son and to the Holy Spirit be all glory, honor, and praise. One God existing in three persons from everlasting to everlasting. Amen. I will also read for us uh, from Proverbs chapter 3. So when I read this section, then we will have read all of Proverbs 3, and that's what we will be looking at together this morning. This is Proverbs 3, beginning in verse 1. My son, do not forget my law, but let your heart keep my commands. For length of days and long life and peace they will add to you. Let not mercy and truth forsake you. Bind them around your neck and write them on the tablet of your heart, and so find favor and high esteem in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He shall direct your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. It will be health to your flesh and strength to your bones." Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of all your increase. So your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects, just as a father, the son in whom he delights. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, today we pray that you would give your wisdom to us, wisdom that we know has been incarnated in your Son and revealed in his cross. Father, may the wisdom of Christ, the wisdom of Christ's cross, be with us now and always. This we pray in his name. Amen. Mark Twain once said, the worst advice you can give someone is be yourself. Now, uh, Twain was cynical. Uh, he was also quite funny, of course. Uh, maybe he's a bit too cynical there with that remark. But I also think there's something to it. The worst advice you can give someone is be yourself. Why? Because none of us are really the person we should be. We all fall short. You should not be satisfied with who you are this day. We all need to change. We need to grow. We need to mature. 
Every one of us needs to work at getting better, being a better version of yourself. We need to be adding new skills and new virtues. We need to aim at self-improvement. You can't just stay the same. You need to change. You need to continually become a new and better version of yourself. And I think we all know this deep down at some level. Uh, We all dream of changing ourselves, don't we? We all dream of being better than we are right now, don't we? This is really what New Year's resolutions are all about, isn't it? At the end of of, of a year, we uh, take stock of ourselves, we consider who we are, we consider ways we'd like to change, and then we resolve to change in those areas. We commit ourselves to change in these ways in the new year. That's what New Year's resolutions are all about. Now, sadly, these resolutions rarely bring lasting change. They don't stick. And so perhaps instead of focusing on New Year's resolutions, we should simply focus on the habits and skills that God calls us to, the kinds of habits and skills that God wants woven into our daily lives. Habits, of course, are just those little liturgies that structure our day-to-day existence. And we want our daily habits, our daily routine uh, to be shaped by God's word, to be shaped by God's truth. And, of course, we need to say we can only improve ourselves by God's grace. God has sent His Son and His Spirit to transform us, to make us new. We can only improve ourselves by the grace of God. But improve ourselves, we must. Don't settle for being who you are. Become who you should be. This is really what Proverbs is all about. There's a very real sense in which you could say Proverbs is a book about self-improvement, not a kind of secular self-help program like what you'll find at the local bookstore. But it's about self-improvement by the grace of God. It's about growing in wisdom and therefore growing in dominion. It's a book that trains us to become the best version of ourselves, to become the best person you can be. Proverbs is all about acquiring skills that will help us excel in every area of life. The book of Proverbs, of course, is a father training his son. This is a father in the first part of the book, especially giving lectures to his son, speaking to his son, teaching his son, training his son in virtue. That's one way to look at it. But of course, it's also the king training the prince, the king training the king to be. So he's ready for his throne. Proverbs imparts to us not just fatherly wisdom, but royal wisdom. Wisdom from a king. Wisdom fit for a king. And so if you want to live as a king, if you want to be able to rule over the little piece of life God gives to you, the little piece of the creation and the culture God has assigned to you, study Proverbs. Know Proverbs. If you follow the lessons of Proverbs, you will be a competent, capable, and confident person. A person who lives with integrity. A person who can make good decisions. You will be a changed and a changing person. Because the book of Proverbs imparts wisdom to us. And wisdom grasps the way life works. Wisdom grasps how life works. The wise person lives with the grain of God's universe. You go against the grain of God's universe, you're going to get splinters. Wisdom shows you how to live with the grain of God's universe. Wisdom matters. 
Wisdom makes a difference. It changes the way we live. And Proverbs 3 is really a great passage because it shows us some of the key skills that lead to wisdom and that flow out of wisdom. It really shows us why we should pursue wisdom and it shows how wisdom will change us. Let's look at this together. The chapter opens with the father saying, pay attention to me. The father is reminding his son of the benefits of wisdom and he wants his son to listen. And he tells his son, if you will keep my law, if the son will keep the father's law, he will experience long life and prosperity. He'll have length of days and peace. That's really the first skill you have to have to grow in wisdom. You have to listen. You have to listen and take the words of your wise teacher to heart. You have to listen and learn. You cannot become wise if you won't listen. Now, what about this promise of long life, this incentive? Well, remember, Proverbs are not ironclad guarantees. They are generalized observations about how life works. Proverbs like this give us broad patterns or principles that help us understand the way God designed the world and the way God runs the world. It is true, there are some who are wise who do not live long lives. And the wise, as we'll see, are certainly not free from all suffering. But all things being equal, the wise succeed at life in ways that others do not. And that's what the father wants the son to understand. That's what's in view here in verses 1 and 2. And so the father is giving his son these incentives. He's pointing to the rewards wisdom brings, the value and worth of wisdom. The father goes on, he tells the son to practice mercy and truth, to keep God's mercy and truth close, to bind them around his neck, to store them up in his heart so he will be favored in the sight of God and man. A life of mercy and truth. That's really what the whole book of Proverbs is about. The whole book of Proverbs is describing what a life of mercy and truth looks like. What's interesting is that those words mercy and truth, especially when they're put together, are usually used to describe God himself. God is mercy and truth. And that's why God never fails us. God never lets us down because God is full of mercy and he is full of truth. But this is also why we should seek mercy and truth in our own lives. So we will become more and more like our God so we can reflect his mercy and truth into the world around us. Mercy and truth companion, compassion, we could say, and integrity are virtues that the wise man will put on display. Mercy and truth, compassion and faithfulness. This marks or characterizes the life of the wise man. Then the father describes another of the key skills of the wise. And really, you could say this is the core virtue that produces wisdom in all its other manifestations. It's trust. You see this in verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He shall direct your paths. The wise man lives a life of faith. The wise man trusts in the Lord. And that means he doesn't trust in himself. It is foolish to trust in yourself, to rely on your own understanding, to say, I know best, I'll do it my way. No, those are the words of the fool. 
The essence of wisdom is trusting God. The essence of wisdom is leaning on God. It's trusting Him and His understanding. It's saying, God knows best. I'll do it His way. God knows best. I'll live the way He calls me to live in His Word. The wise man humbly receives God's Word as his source and standard of truth. Whereas the fool puts his own word and his own understanding at the center of life. He trusts in his own understanding. He trusts in his own feelings. He makes himself the standard and source. The essence of arrogance and therefore the essence of foolishness is to neglect God's Word. To reject God's Word in favor of your own. It's really what happened in the Garden of Eden. Is it not? Satan came and said, has God really said? Satan called God's Word into question. And Satan wanted Adam and his wife to set themselves up as the judges. And that's what they proceeded to do. Adam and Eve proceeded to exalt their own judgment above God's. They set in judgment on God's Word. That is the essence of foolishness. Fools lack wisdom because they lack humility. They think they have the right to question and challenge and defy God's Word. Fools fight against the divine design. They do not pay attention to how God made the world and how God commands us to live. They don't think they need God's Word. They do not realize that God's commands are to humans what water is to a fish. That His commands describe how we were made to live. How human life was designed to work. And we neglect His commands or reject His commands or live outside of His commands at our own peril. The Father says here, trust in the Lord with all your heart. The heart is especially important in Scripture Uh, In general, and in Proverbs in particular, the heart is not just the center of our feelings. That's how we think. We think in terms of head and heart, thinking and emotions. But in Scripture, there is no such dichotomy. Uh, The heart is the center not only of our emotions, it's the center of our thoughts. And so Proverbs says elsewhere, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Or Proverbs 6 says, God hates a heart that devises wicked plans. You look at Proverbs and you find that the heart thinks and plans and devises and schemes and reasons. Of course, we find that the Word of God should be in our hearts so that the, uh, so that the Word of God will shape our hearts so that our understanding of the world will derive from the Word. And this is why Proverbs has so much to say about the heart. With apologies to Disney... The message of Proverbs is not follow your heart. It's fill your heart. Fill your heart with God's Word and God's wisdom. And then the message is guard your heart. Guard your heart against other influences that would lead you astray from God's Word and God's wisdom. Only a fool would trust his own heart. Again, the fool says, I'll do it my way. The wise man says, I'll do it God's way. The fool says, I know best. The wise man says, God knows best. Now, I think sometimes this is misunderstood uh, in a certain way. Uh, When Solomon says, do not lean on your own understanding, he's not attacking understanding as such. 
He's not becoming an anti-intellectual. He's not attacking the intellect or human reasoning. He's saying, do not use your understanding in a rebellious way or an autonomous way or a self-centered way. He's not saying, reject understanding and instead rely on your feelings. No, your feelings are just as untrustworthy as your thoughts. What he's saying is this. He's saying, use your understanding in submissive and faithful ways. In other words, seek to understand God's Word. Use your reason to understand God's Word. Use your reason and understanding to learn from God. Let God be your teacher and follow what you learn from God. God has to be your ultimate authority, your ultimate starting point. Everyone has something they choose to not question. Something which functions as their highest authority, their definitive starting point. It might be human reason, it might be human emotion, it might be science or pop culture or the work of some philosopher or guru. Everyone lives by faith in some ultimate authority. Proverbs is really about the battle to see whose understanding or whose interpretation of reality will rule your life. Whose wisdom will rule your life. Solomon says if it's not God's, you're living in darkness. If it's not God's wisdom, you're living as a fool. Solomon says here, in all your ways, acknowledge Him. That is, in all of life, acknowledge the Lord. God's role in your life cannot be crammed into a compartment as though you could take God and box Him in into some defined area of your life. No, He rules over all of it. Everything is His business. He has authority. He has authority over all of your life. He speaks to all of your life. He wants you to obey him in all of your life. His truth should be imprinted on all that you do. Verse seven unpacks this further, really giving us another skill of the wise, but flowing out of what we've just seen. Another skill or virtue of the wise is humility. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Well, what's the opposite of being wise in your own eyes? It's being humble. It's relying upon God. And really, this virtue of humility is woven through this entire speech from father to son. In fact, you see it down towards the end in verse 34. God scorns the scornful, but gives favor to the humble. Uh, the way that verse is translated and then quoted in the New Testament, it goes like this. God opposes the proud, but exalts the humble. That's how it's quoted a couple of times in the New Testament. God opposes the proud and God exalts the humble. God opposes and God exalts. There is nothing worse than being opposed by God. Can you imagine anything worse than having God against you? And there's nothing better than being exalted by God. There's nothing better than having God lift you up. Well, what does God exalt? It's not intelligence. It's not athleticism. It's not beauty. What God exalts is humility. The humble man does not pretend to be self-sufficient. He confesses his dependence upon God. He doesn't try to define reality on his own. He can admit his sins and his weaknesses. In the divine physics, pride causes you to fall. Humility lets you fly. The self-exalting are brought down. The humble are lifted up. 
Now, Peter quotes this passage, Proverbs 3.34, in 1 Peter 5.5. He's got a little discourse on humility. And I think that this text, Proverbs 3.34, probably resonated with Peter because he had experienced it in his own life. Think about Peter's life as an apostle during Jesus' earthly ministry, and especially at the time of Jesus' crucifixion. Peter was prideful. And so what happened? Peter fell. And when he fell, he fell hard. Peter acted self-sufficient. And so what happened? The rug was pulled out from under him and he stumbled. But he recognized his sin. He recognized his mistake. He recognized how arrogant he had been. And after humbling himself, he also experienced God's exaltation. His life is really the embodiment of Proverbs 3.34. It's interesting, in the ancient world, for philosophers like, say, Aristotle, humility was not considered a virtue. Only in biblical religion are the humble exalted. It's only something you find in the Scriptures. Augustine said something like this. Not exactly this, but something like this. What is the most needed Christian virtue? Or actually, let me put it this way. What are the most needed Christian virtues? He says humility, humility, and humility. Humility must mark the Christian. In another place, Augustine said, He who redeemed your life from corruption and who crowns you does not desire to crown a swelled head. The crown God has in store for His people will not fit on a swollen head, a head that is swollen with pride. Understand what humility is. Humility is not being self-deprecating. It's not merely an awareness of our shortcomings. Really what humility is more than anything else is a constant sense of our utter and complete dependence upon God. It's just a sense of uh, of being a creature and also a sinner before God. It's a recognition of who you are in light of God. Humility comes from an honest and realistic appraisal of who we are in our relationship with God. That's why humility really is a a, a divine virtue. Humility only happens when we see ourselves in light of who God is. Humility is a specifically Christian virtue. Well, Solomon goes on. He describes another skill of the wise in verses 9 and 10. We can call this stewardship in general or perhaps tithing specifically. The wise know what to do with money. The wise know where money fits into life's big picture. Solomon says, honor the Lord with your wealth and the first fruits of your income and your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats bursting with wine. The wise man practices financial discipline and generosity. He seeks to honor the Lord with his wealth through tithes and offerings, but also through a life of practical generosity. And because the wise man is willing to part with his money, he shows that really his own comfort and status, those things we associate with wealth, are not the most important things in his life. Money is a form of power. Money really is a form of honor. Well, who is honored first with your money? The Lord or yourself? Who gets the place of honor in your budget? That's really the question here. 
there's a reward, of course, promised here for those who do the right thing with their money. Uh, Matthew Henry once said, those who do good with what they have shall have more to do good with. And again, as a proverb, that's true. That's what Solomon is saying here. The wise man knows his wealth is a blessing and he seeks to use that blessing to bless others. He seeks to use what he has to bless others. He uses his riches to enrich others. He uses his wealth not to isolate himself in luxury, but to build up the community. And really towards the end of the chapter, towards the end of this speech in Proverbs 3, 28 to 31, that's what you have. Solomon returns to this theme of wealth, and he describes how to use wealth to strengthen relationships and to strengthen the community and to serve others. See, what does wisdom do? Wisdom promotes human flourishing. Wisdom uses money in ways that help others to thrive. The wise man helps others. He is trustworthy in his dealings. Look at some of the things Solomon says here. Verse 27. He does not withhold good from those to whom it is due. That is, he helps those he is responsible to help. Verse 28. He doesn't lie and cheat his neighbor. He doesn't lie to his neighbor or cheat his neighbor out of things that are rightfully his. Verse 29. He does not plot evil against his neighbor. Verse 30. He does not stir up needless strife. Verse 31, he does not envy those who get rich from oppression. There are honest and dishonest ways of getting rich. Don't envy those who have made their wealth from oppressing others. In short, Solomon is saying, use your wealth, use your resources, use your prosperity in ways that bless the community and honor God. And know that as you do so, God will honor you. God will bless you. Use your money in ways that promote trust and love between people. Because really, trust and love are the glue that bind us together as a community, that form us into a society. Be trustworthy in your dealings. Use your wealth to promote a culture of generosity in the midst of a culture of selfishness. That's Solomon's message. But the wise man also understands the limits of what wealth can do. He understands how wealth is a form of honor and a form of power and will steward it accordingly as a gift from God. But he's also going to understand the limits on what wealth can do. Indeed, he's going to understand that in God's scale of value, he will know that wisdom is greater than money. Wisdom is of more worth than riches really find this in verses 13 to 18. There we find that wisdom brings happiness because wisdom is better than silver or gold. Wisdom is to be prized above rubies. Wisdom is a tree of life. These are all ways Solomon describes the worth of wisdom. Wisdom brings benefits into our lives that riches cannot. Riches can't buy happiness, but wisdom can bring happiness. In verses 21 and 26, you have something similar. We find how wisdom brings comfort and security in ways riches cannot. We think riches can bring us comfort and can bring us security. In reality, they can't. Solomon says it is wisdom that preserves our lives and beautifies our souls. Those who walk in wisdom are the ones who will not stumble. They live without fear because the Lord is their confidence. This is what wisdom does for us. It it, it gives us a a confidence that wealth never can. It gives us a, a security that wealth never can. Solomon is saying to his son, 
Don't make money your aim in life. Make wisdom your aim, and then you'll get the right amount of money thrown in. Don't make riches your aim in life. Make wisdom your aim. And then you'll have the level of riches that are right for you in God's providence. And not only that, but you'll have treasures that are far better than those money can buy. Wisdom is the superior currency. Wisdom is better than silver and gold. So for example, money can buy a house, which is a nice thing to have. But it takes wisdom to turn that house into a home full of joy. Money can put food on the table, and that's nice to have. But it's wisdom that puts laughter and joy at the table. Money can buy jewelry for a woman, but only wisdom can win her heart. Jewels can make a woman beautiful, but wisdom turns the woman herself into a jewel and into a crown. Money can provide a measure of safety and security in this world, but only wisdom can lead you safely and securely into the world to come. Money is good. Wisdom is better. Money is power, but wisdom brings an even greater power. So this is Solomon's message. Don't settle for money. Go after wisdom. Don't settle for money when there are better things to be had. It'd be better to be poor with wisdom than to be rich and foolish. Who are the real winners and losers in life? You can't just look at the economics of the thing. Who are the real winners and losers in this world? Not those with the most possessions, but those with the most wisdom are the real winners. When it's all sorted out, the wise will be seen to have the true inheritance. Solomon talks about that here. How wisdom brings the true and lasting inheritance. Wise people win at the game of life in the end. If you want to know where to invest, buy stock in wisdom. It is always a bull market for wisdom. Yet another skill is outlined in verse 11. The wise man is teachable. He receives the Lord's correction. You know, no matter how much you plan your life, life never goes according to plan. There are always going to be obstacles and trials and setbacks along the way that get in your way. Well, how does wisdom interpret these struggles? It's interesting he moves right from talking about how if you honor the Lord with your wealth, you're going to prosper, and then jumps from that to this chastening, this suffering we're going to go through. I think there's a reason why these are put right next to each other, because we need to see how these things go together. How should we interpret the trials and setbacks that come our way? Well, verse 11 tells us, Do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest His correction. For whom the Lord loves, He corrects just as a father, the son in whom He delights. God fills our barns with plenty at times. At other times, He empties them out. See, all of our lives are a complicated mix of earthly blessing and earthly sorrow, of divine favor and divine chastening. A complicated mix of the Lord giving and the Lord taking away. A complicated mix of the Lord filling our vats to bursting with wine and also the Lord 
emptying out those vats to where it seems we have nothing. The wise man will accept both from the Lord for his good. Indeed, sometimes life's greatest teachers come in the form of trials and pain. Sometimes God will teach us things through suffering. We can't learn any other way. See, think of yourself as a piece of iron on God's anvil, and he is hammering you into shape. And that's what your hard times are all about. Because God wants to make you strong and tough and sharp. Discipline is necessary. It's necessary all over. A family without discipline will produce weak children. A church without discipline will produce failed Christians. A nation without discipline will produce feeble citizens. God cares about us enough to discipline us. God loves His children enough to discipline us because He wants us to grow. He wants us to change. He wants us to be strong and mature. And when God puts you through the ringer of suffering, it is not a sign that He hates you. It's not a sign that He's mad at you. It is a sign that God loves you and is fully invested in your transformation. When God afflicts you for a time, He is treating you as a son. When you see the wicked prospering, those who don't love God and don't know God, prospering and seemingly succeeding, it's not that God loves them. It's not that God is letting them get away with it. It's just that they're not part of His family, so God doesn't bother with them. He doesn't chasten them because they're not His children. His own, He chastens. His children, He chastens because He wants to fit us for glory. Scripture is always clear about this. The pathway to glory runs through suffering. The pathway to wisdom runs through suffering. That suffering trains us and toughens us. Do not reject the Lord's discipline by rejecting the Lord Himself. The very things you may be tempted to use as evidence against God's love or even against God's existence are actually proofs of His love and His deep investment in your final perfection. Those hardships are proof of God's commitment to you, God's love for you. Finally, those who would be wise cultivate the skill of wonder. The wise man lives in the fear of God. That's something you see all throughout the Bible's wisdom literature. We live in fear of God because He is our Creator. And so we are filled with awe at the works of God. The works of God we see all around us. And Solomon's got a little piece here where he focuses on that. This so often pops up in the wisdom literature. There will be reflections on the splendor and the majesty and the beauty and the wisdom of creation. We are supposed to look at the world around us and be amazed by God. We should never lose that sense of childlike wonder and awe. So verse 19, By wisdom the Lord founded the earth. By understanding He established the heavens. Verse 20, By His knowledge the depths were broken up and the clouds dropped down the dew. Fools, even really smart fools, I'm talking about fools with PhDs, Tell us that this cosmos just happened. By chance, the world came to be. It just sprung into existence by chance. And then life came from non-life. And order came from chaos. And rationality emerged from the non-rational. And morality from what was non-moral. That's 
utter foolishness. The foolishness of that should be evident to all. No, Scripture shows us God is our Creator. Scripture gives us a different account. God created the world in wisdom. And He is the source of every good thing in this world. And we should be in awe of what God has done. Uh, Solomon here mentions the rain, it seems, coming down out of the clouds of heaven. Rain or dew coming down out of the clouds of heaven. Let me give you this as an example. I'm stealing this from another pastor who developed this, but I think this is really good. It helps us to see what Solomon is talking about here. So picture yourself as a farmer in the Near East, far from any lake or stream. You've got a few wells to get water from. But if your crops are going to grow and your family is going to be fed from month to month, water has to come on fields from another source. From where? Well, the sky. Okay, the sky. Water will come out of the clear blue sky. Well, that's not quite how it works. Water will have to be carried in the sky from the Mediterranean Sea over several hundred miles and then be poured out from the sky onto the fields. Okay, so the water is going to be carried. How much does it weigh? Well, if one inch of rain falls on one square mile of farmland during the night, that would be 28 million cubic feet of water which is 206 million gallons, which is 1.7 billion pounds of water. 1.7 billion pounds. That's heavy. So how does it get up in the sky and stay there if it's so heavy? Well, it gets there by evaporation. Okay, that's a nice word. What's it mean? It means that the water sort of stops being water for a while so it can go up and not down, as it usually does. Well, then how does the water get down after it goes up? Well, condensation happens. It's another nice word. What's that? It means the water starts becoming water, starts becoming liquid again by gathering around little dust particles that are about 0.00001 centimeters wide, which is really small. Okay, what about the salt? It was salt water that evaporated after all. What about the salt? The Mediterranean Sea is salt water. The salt would kill the crops. So what about the salt? Well, the salt's got to be taken out. Okay, so the sky picks up billions of pounds of water from the sea, takes out the salt, and then carries it for several hundred miles and then dumps it on the farm? Well, it doesn't exactly dump it. If it dumped a billion pounds of water on the farm, the wheat would be crushed. So what does the sky do? The sky dribbles the billions of pounds of water down in little drops. And those drops have to be big enough to fall for one mile without evaporating and small enough to keep from crushing the wheat stalks. So how do these microscopic specks of water that weigh a billion pounds get heavy enough to fall? That's the right way to ask the question. We call it coalescence. Well, what's that? Another nice word. What's it mean? It means the specks of water start bumping into each other and join up and get bigger. And when they are big enough but not too big, they fall. Well, uh, it's not quite like that uh, because actually they would just bounce off each other instead of joining up if there were no electric field present that helps them form these little droplets. Okay, you, I could, you could keep going with this on and on and on just to explain rain. But we need to understand, rain is a work of wisdom. It is one wonder in a world filled with wonders. 
everything about this world is wonderful. Now think about this. If God works such wonders in the natural world, imagine what His wisdom can accomplish in you. Made in His image. The one He has set His love upon. We are surrounded by wisdom. We are sustained by His wisdom. We are created by His wisdom. We're being recreated by His wisdom. And this is why wisdom matters so much. See, wisdom is not just some impersonal cosmic force floating around the universe. Wisdom is not an abstract, impersonal principle. No, ultimately, wisdom is a person. Wisdom has a face and a name and a body. Wisdom has a location. Wisdom is Jesus. Wisdom's name is Jesus. He is the wisdom of God revealed to us, given to us, now indwelling us. The Father made the world through His Son by the power of His Spirit. He has revealed His wisdom to us. The One who is behind it all is Jesus. To seek wisdom is ultimately to seek Jesus. To prize wisdom is ultimately to prize Jesus. Everything Proverbs says about wisdom, you can plug in Jesus. It's saying all of this about Jesus. Real wisdom is found in Jesus. Real wisdom is found on that man, in that man hanging on a cross. Indeed, that's what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 1. Jesus is the revelation of God's wisdom. His cross is the revelation of God's wisdom. He is the wisdom through whom God created the world. And He is the wisdom through whom God is redeeming the world. Christ is the wisdom of God. And again, everything Proverbs says about wisdom can be said about Jesus. So go back and plug in wisdom, plug in Jesus everywhere wisdom is talked about here. What do you find? Who should we listen to? We should listen to Jesus. We should bind His mercy and truth around our necks. We should trust in Him with all our hearts and acknowledge Him in all our paths. We should honor Him with all we possess and value Him above silver and gold. Happy is the man who finds Him. He is the very wisdom of God given to us. Let us pray together. Father, we do thank You that You have given us Christ Jesus as the revelation and manifestation of Your wisdom. We see His wisdom reflected in Your work of creation through Him and everything around us. But even more than that, we see Your wisdom revealed in Him as He is Your plan of salvation. He is the One who has brought salvation to us, redeeming us from our sin, justifying us before You. Making it possible for us to be reborn and adopted into Your family by grace. Making it possible for us to live new lives as a new humanity. May we live lives of wisdom. May we be filled with the wisdom that is Christ Himself. We pray this in His name. Amen. As God's royal priesthood, let us stand for prayer. Heavenly Father, let your loving kindness and your truth continually preserve us and let us not wander from your commandments. And we have gathered today as your people, a people who rejoice in the way of your testimonies 
May we forsake foolishness and go in the way of understanding. I pray, O Lord, that we would be teachable in all areas, and that we would meditate on your precepts and contemplate your ways. Let your merciful kindness be our comfort. Almighty God, may you grant humility and wisdom to our pastor. Protect him and his family from the ways of the world. Be their shield, O Lord. We pray that your word would be on the hearts of all that have been called to be officers at TPC. Lord, we also pray for Theopolis as they continue to seek the best way to influence the world around us. You know what is good and right for us. May we honor you with our words, our thoughts, and our deeds. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for those in our church who use their musical gifts to serve you. May our worship and singing continue to glorify you. Heavenly Father, you have blessed us tremendously, and we pray that you would lead us as we desire to make facility and building upgrades. You have given us so much, and we pray that we would be good stewards with all that you have provided. Almighty God, you have blessed this congregation with so many gifts. We pray that you would guide each of us as we strive to serve your kingdom with the talents you have bestowed upon us. May we have the courage and desire to serve our neighbor. And hear us, O Lord, as we pray for the families of TPC, that students would be ready to work hard as the new term begins, and that teachers would use their influence to guide their students in godly wisdom. We pray that children would honor their parents and that our households would be filled with joy and peace. Heavenly Father, the world calls out for our children, trying to get them to trust in themselves instead of you, the creator of all things. Again, we cry out for your protection. Grant all of us strength in fighting against these temptations. Heavenly Father, may our marriages be strong and faithful, full of grace and mercy. We pray for the singles of our church that those who desire a spouse will find one, that those who desire children will have their prayers answered. We pray for our expectant mothers, for Ashley Douglas, for Lauren Russo, Shauna Phillips, and Bethany Winstead and Abigail Waddell. May these ladies and their children be protected. We pray for everyone seeking new or better employment. Lord God, we pray for our unbelieving family and friends. May the Spirit guide us as we interact with them. And we pray for those who are suffering in sickness or chronic illness, for those who have lost loved ones, for those with family and friends who are suffering, and for those with aging parents. And hear us now as we silently name those who are in particular need. Lord God, we know you are good to those whose hope is in you, to the one that seeks you. I pray that we would be a people that does indeed hope in you and seeks you all of our days. Hear us, O Lord. And as we look to Jesus for all things, hear us now as we pray to you the words that he taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, 